1: I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from The New Statesman.
2: Hello, welcome back to Seriously. We've been away for a couple of weeks, but we're back with some more pop culture funness. Caroline, you've been
1: away-ish. Yeah, so I had a week off where I actually stayed exactly where I live. Um Lovely. For various logistical reasons, I didn't actually go away, but I had a really nice kind of vacation in my own city, which was nice. I did tourist things like actually go to exhibitions and go swimming in the pond in Hyde Park, and yeah, oh, it was really nice.
2: Yeah, that sounds beautiful. We did a really good pond swim in Highgate, didn't we,
1: once upon a time? We did, on a, on the hottest day, as anyone who lives <laughs> in London will know, the hottest day we went and swam in Highgate Ponds. Um, yeah, and I went, I went to a play, um, which we'll come back to later, but um, yeah, it was it was a really nice week but you've been to slightly more exotic places than me.
2: Yeah, I went on family holidays. I'm still young enough, I hope, to go on family holidays. So I went with my boyfriend's family, which was really really nice, to Italy and with my dad to Spain and that was lovely.
1: And did you do much cultural stuff while you were there or was it mostly just a family thing? I
2: read a lot, which is like the only thing I do on holiday. I like sit still and read <laughs> for
1: two weeks. So I did that. I read some some good stuff, like some of the some of the Booker shortlist. You're doing better than me then. As ever, the Booker longlist came out and I I went, no, I haven't read any of these books. Yeah, no,
2: I hadn't either when it came out. Yeah, sorry, long list. One thing that I did before I went away was I went to see
1: Inside Out. Yes, so I went to see it this weekend, having heard a lot of buzz about it and a lot of particularly grown-up buzz about it. So not in the same way that I feel like when Frozen came out and was obviously massive, there were lots of pieces by parents saying, Mm. oh my God, my child loves this so much, we have to watch the DVD three times a day. With Inside Out, also, you know, an animated Disney Pixar film, you were more getting just adults. Going, yeah, I love this film. It was awesome. I
2: wonder before we start talking about it, one of the great traditions of Pixar films is the short beforehand.
1: Yes, the Lava short. Yeah, what did you think? I was baffled initially. Me too. I was really confused, and then a little bit creeped out by it.
2: Yeah, I didn't I think it was the best of their. Some of them were so good. I really remember. I can't remember what film it was on now, but bounding, which was like a sheep like bounding around. Yes, it was, like so cute and lovely. This one is called Lava and it's like a love story between two volcanoes. And it's just like a volcano that looks like a volcano and then a volcano that looks inexplicably like a human
1: woman. <laughs> yeah, and, and one of them's a, sort of above the surface of the sea. They're kind of like atolls, volcano islands, and it's really lonely and so sing- the, basically the whole thing, Max, of someone wrote a song around mm-hmm. the pun of the word lava with the word love yeah. and then they were like, what can I do with this? And this is the result of it. So yeah, the the boy volcano's sad because he's got no friends and and they want a lava, And then the girl who <laughs> hears him and pops up from under the sea. and But oh no, he's already shrunk back into the sea. And, you know, spoiler it's alert, really finally weird. they get together. <laughs> uh,
2: also, it's not, you say that it's maybe like based around the pun. It's not an extremely, like the strength of that pun is not one that you're like,
1: ah, there's a song i's, in this. I wasted at least the first five minutes of the actual film trying to work out, does the pun work better if you've got an American accent?
2: I think it's a singing thing more mm. than an accent thing like I love us. Yeah. I think you have to be singing. Extend I don't think you can say it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but so once that was over and we got into the the film itself um I had much more positive feelings. It was indeed just as good as I'd heard and read on the internet. Um we should say if you have if you haven't seen it the, or seen anything about it the basic premise of the film is a film set inside a girl's head really. Mm-hmm. So um 11-year-old Riley is at a kind of crucial moment in her life. Her family are moving across the country to a a new place, from Minnesota to San Francisco. And quite a lot of the action of the film is concerned with the five sort of personified emotions inside her head. So you spend a lot of time in her brain watching the emotions bouncing around doing stuff.
2: Yeah, exactly. And listeners may have seen the trailer before seeing it. I saw the trailer in cinemas in an old fashioned way and was like, everyone's talking about this great film, but it looks not so good. The trailer is just this one tiny moment in the film where it's like the dad and the mum and Riley all sat around the dinner table. And Riley's like had a first day at school that's not gone very well. Oh,
0: I remember that. So, Riley, how was the first day of school? Fine, I guess. Did you guys pick up on that? Sure. Hold mm-hmm. on. Something's wrong. Signal the husband. <clears throat> uh oh, she's looking at what did she say? Oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What is it, woman? What?
2: When that moment is isolated as a trailer, it makes it look like this is a stereotypical film about, like, gender. That's, yeah, like, yeah not that's a good point, good. actually. So I was watching it like, oh, is this about how men think versus how women think? And it looked really bad. If you've seen that trailer and on the strength of it and not going to see the film, go and see the film. Like, ignore that trailer because it's just one tiny moment in a very, very subtle, nuanced, beautiful film. Yes,
1: so the the sort of... the, the narrative arc of the film concerns a, I'm not gonna lie, a slightly bogus feeling concept of how memory works. Yeah. This idea that but you just I think you just have to kind of get over it mm. um and not think about it too hard. At least it doesn't go for the whole like left brain, right brain, feeling, emotion, Mm. womanly, manly, neuro bollocks stuff that you do get. But it does have its own sort of separate little brand of that, which is to do with this idea of a core memory, a key personality defining moment that is stored somewhere special in your head and informs how you react to other things. And the point is that the five emotions, joy, sadness, disgust, anger and fear, take turns to be in charge of Riley's brain and to govern her responses to things. But sort of disaster strikes and joy and sadness fall out of the kind of console room of her brain. So fear, disgust and anger are left in control while joy and sadness are sort of deep in her brain trying to find their way back. They have various adventures in Imagination Land and what was the goofy su- island goofy island and surrealist bit
2: and <laughs> oh yeah yeah it's the like surrealist- abstract thought chamber. abstract
1: thought that's what it was yeah which had some kind of quite adult aimed dali puns in it yeah so while so while joy and sadness are on this sort of voyage of discovery trying to recover riley's special core memories and trying to get back into control um the other three emotions are getting her through her first day at her new school and her her ice hockey tryouts and her attempts to make new friends and it's going really, really badly.
2: Yeah, and there are terrible mood swings in sort of the real world. It's also worth mentioning that the reason sadness and joy sort of fall out of her head, as it were, is because there's this sort of struggle going on where sadness is somehow affecting all of these memories in her brain seemingly spontaneously and joy is desperately trying to shut sadness out and what the film sort of becomes is is an exploration of to what extent it can be a good thing to feel sadness and to what extent you should try and push sadness away and to what extent you should embrace it and how, when you get older, inevitably,
1: things become more sad. Yeah, so visually that's expressed by the memories are these little kind of golden baubles. When When they're happy memories, they're little golden baubles. But when sadness personified as a kind of short, cosy sad-looking little woman, blue woman in a turtleneck with glasses. When she touches one of these golden baubles, they sort of get this icy blue tinge. Mm. And so Joy, voiced by Amy Poehler and very kind of upbeat and a bit, looks a bit like a pixie, basically, (laughs) tries very hard to stop sadness touching the memory so as to keep them kind of golden and perfect and intact. But as you say, the, the overriding message and the reason why I spent probably the latter half of the film crying is this... Really, really beautiful uh, discussion of the fact that actually sometimes you need to be sad, Mm. that the only way for Riley to productively process what's happened to her, this upheaval in her life, is for it to be okay for her to feel sad about it. Yeah,
2: and it's it's also a, a again a thing to do with getting older and realizing that sadness becomes a more concrete part of your day to day life. They're sort of much made of her like goofiness and her youthful like playfulness. Important parts of her personalities are labeled islands, and there's like a goofy island and things like that, and and that's kind of terribly sad in a way because one part of you is like oh we want her to stay exactly like this that's what joy as a character wants we want her to stay goofy playful having fun all the time and actually it's a bit inevitable that that can't always happen as you get older
1: yeah so i think what it was that made me cry so much in the cinema was just this really subtle expression of something we all know which is everything changes nothing can ever stay the same and that the older you get, the more complicated your emotions are and the less likely you ever are to feel just unequivocally, completely happy about anything.
2: Exactly, and it's a coming-of-age film, classic trope. And I saw a couple of other films this year that it's kind of inevitably reminded me of, which was, uh, did you see Girlhood, um, which was about sort yes. of growing up? in yeah. the, There's that moment in Girlhood where all the girls are sat round on a bed in a hotel and they know that uh, the main character is going to leave basically to become a drug dealer and there's this real sense of loss and one of them says oh do you remember when we went to Disneyland it was only a couple of weeks ago that we went to Disneyland Mm. and it broke my heart in that film and this is the same thing really it's like oh are we still going to go to Disneyland oh is that part is that still going to be a part of us and it's sort of the answer's like well yes and also no
1: (laughs) you might go but you won't feel the same about it as you would have done yeah um one thing that has caused a bit of controversy on the internet i mean the film seems to have been pretty universally critically well received Mm -hmm. which is great incidentally because i read in one review that it's only pixar's second film that has a sort of proper female protagonist after frozen oh i would not have thought that great that it has done so well and that mm-hmm. hopefully they will continue on this trajectory. And great um, that they
2: didn't feel the need to make like Joy a girl and sadness
1: a boy or something and have that part of the narrative. Absolutely, but the, the sort of physical expressions of the emotions has got a bit of chatter going, particularly about this fact that Joy is a kind of, as I said, a kind of pixie-ish, short-haired, slim, upbeat girl and sadness is a kind of smaller, slightly dumpy, like, pudgy pudgy um, <laughs> little ball of little sadness. Ball, of, ball of sadness um and this has got a few um well some kind of parenting bloggers and so on talking about how this is really bad for trying to reinforce positive body image with your kids that you know sadness is fat and joy is thin and therefore fat people are sad and can never be happy
2: mm, i understand that as a concern but i felt mostly like sadness is so cute (laughs) um that's one of the things that makes her so endearing as a character she's wonderfully played by phyllis from the office whose surname i can't remember but she there's there's lots of moments where she kind of comically falls to the ground in a in a despairing way and i think part of that is expressed in the way she moves and it is very pixar that sort of like animating emotion with movement and she is a bit slower and a bit you know she flops down that kind of thing and i think that's like the nice part. Yeah, of the I did as well.
1: And also the fact of what they wear. The fact that um, Joy actually—I mean, she's just wearing a sort of like a dress, isn't she? It's mm. no, nothing special. But sadness, um, her her emotion is expressed through her clothes. She's wearing a kind of snuggly polar neck, big and white turtle big, neck. and she kind of sinks into the collar a bit of it when when she's feeling particularly sad.
2: I really liked that Joy had blue hair because mm. it just goes to show that like one of the main messages is the, of the film is like that bittersweet all my happy memories are sort of kind of tinged with sadness because they're over like joy is always going to have
1: like blue hair (laughs) because sadness is blue in the film it's like the color i hadn't thought about it that's a good point i think it's quite sweet yeah they could have made her any color one reviewer i thought had a really good repost to this which was peter bradshaw in the guardian said for what it's worth i thought of sadness and joy as like velma and daphne from scooby-doo of equal importance in the long run which I think is a really good comparison actually that, you know, Daphne was obviously like the hot blonde one in Scooby Doo and Velma had the bowl cut and the turtleneck. But the gang didn't sort of work without both of them, that they both played their parts.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's a really nice phrase because the, one of the whole points of the film is this idea that they have to work as a unit. So when mm. sadness and, and joy are missing, obviously a lot of stuff goes wrong for Riley because she keeps responding to things in a way that she'd rather not, which is again a very good representation of what it can feel like to be a teenager which is like your mum's asked you to do something and you you want to you want to just like not have an argument and yet you manage to say something horrible Mm. and you manage to create this terrible argument so yeah the 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 need to gel as a group and have all your emotions in play
1: the other part that really resonated with me actually was the part where they can't make her feel anything. Everything in their kind of mind console has kind of iced over and greyed out and they can't, the emotions can't get through to her at all and the suggestion is that she's now properly depressed. Yeah. And I thought that, in what is supposed to be at least partly a film for kids, that's a really adult concept to try and get across. That depression is different from sadness. That sadness, as we've said, can be a productive emotion but Depression is a feeling of nothing, an unreachable nothing, yeah, I thought that was really, really good.
2: yeah, it's lovely, and it, as you say, it's quite like big stuff for a kid's film, but we know that kids feel these things, so it shouldn't be. It's funny that we have this idea that that some topics are like too much for children, but as the protagonist shows, like eleven year olds are perfectly capable of experiencing depression, so why shouldn't we reflect that in the stuff that they watch? yeah but yeah so I was reduced to an absolute
1: weeping wreck in the cinema <laughs> watching yeah. it so was I it wasn't till I realised that the um, the couple next to me were similarly because I, I watched Silent it on an, an afternoon screening so there were loads of kids um, some of whom were not I think were a bit young for it and thus weren't really concentrating at all mm. um, so yeah until the, the couple next to me I saw that they were also like mopping their faces did I feel slightly better oh. about it <laughs> so yeah five stars from me yep same here great film So now we're going to talk a bit about Benedict Cumberbatch and fandom more generally and what happens when fandom sort of intersects with non-internet elements of culture. This has come up all over again recently because as I mentioned at the beginning I went to see a play in my week off which happened to be Benedict Cumberbatch performing in Hamlet at the Barbican. Now we talked a bit more about the sort of Shakespeare context of this on the main New Statesman podcast which we'll link to if if that's what you're interested in but what we're going to talk about specifically here is about fans and his fans and the way that they have been written up in the press they can't seem to review him without also reviewing his fandom and how that happens more generally with celebrities and their followings and so on. What specifically happened in this case was that after I think the first week of previews at the stage door Benedict Cumberbatch came out and asked the fans who were waiting for him not to take pictures of him while he was performing because he found it really really distracting and although he didn't use social media he wanted them to blog the hell out of this little clip to spread the word. But what I really want to do is try and enlist you. I don't use social media, and I'd really appreciate it if you did tweet, blog, hashtag the shit out of this one for me.
2: <laughs> behind this, this is part of it, photographs, whatever, outside, find. I can see
1: cameras, I can see red lights in the auditorium. And it may not be any of you here that did that, but it's blindingly obvious, like that one there, that little red light, it's very, very obvious. So we started to again tonight, to be or not to be, which is not the easiest place to be going to play, full stop but for the second time even harder. I could see a red light in about the third row on the right. It's mortifying. There's nothing less supportive or enjoyable than that to be on stage experiencing that. But there'd already been this kind of uncomfortableness expressed in various critics' pieces about how certain elements of the audience just don't know how to behave when seeing a Shakespeare play. They're just there to see Benedict Cumberbatch. They couldn't possibly be there to be interested in Hamlet. And they whisper and talk and giggle and Mm. do all kinds of other pejorative adjective words for young people doing stuff. Um, I have to say in the performance I was in, I really didn't experience any of that, but that's just one night and that's just me. So I'm not saying it's not happening. Um, But it does, I think, speak to generally this, and I wrote about this actually in the magazine last week, that there's now this kind of conflict going on that who is theatre really for and Does fandom have any place in it?
2: Yeah, I really get that kind of slightly snide.
0: fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com
2: tone that's been going on especially because benedict cumberbatch's fans i think are predominantly women young women and that's seen as like not the target audience for hamlet weirdly Mm. which is it reminds me of that um i think it was a review of the iron lady that the Vagenda blog Pinned as their sort of like tagline to their side, which was it's like King Lear, but for girls.
1: <laughs> yeah, the fact that you could even say that, but it's so true. I mean, I actually had to write pretty much the exact same article last August when Martin Freeman was doing Richard the Third, right? I think at the Trafalgar Studios. and pretty much the exact same thing happened when obviously lots of people who know him principally from The Hobbit. And maybe and Sherlock, too thought, like, "Oh, my favorite actor's doing a play. I 'll buy tickets for that." Mm. Along they went, and they did things like clap at the end of a scene, which theater convention dictates you don't do in the same way that concert convention dictates that you don 't clap between the movements of a symphony, apart from you totally can if you want to and there was There was all this kind of huffing from long time theater critics back then back last summer about how you know you're ruining the flow of the play if you clap and I mean my feeling then as now is that whilst obviously everyone at a live event should try and respect each other and not get in each other's way also you shouldn't just not express your enthusiasm just because you think you're not supposed to
2: yeah it's a it's I find it quite tired and a a weird you know The the whole point of the theatre is that it's meant to be different from sort of sitting and watching Mm. a film. You know, there's an atmosphere that comes with going to see a live performance and clapping, etc. I think is a normal part of that. So I can't get on board with those complaints uh, in the same way that some people can. I should probably confess from the out that I'm not a huge Benedict Cumberbatch fan. (laughs) I know that won't make me very popular um, online, but... In the same way that you can like really love a celebrity without actually knowing them as a person at all, and I don't know Benedict Cumberbatch as a person at all, mm. so I'm not going to be like he seems like a bad guy. I'm not. I'm not there, I'm not here for his brand, as it were.
1: <laughs> I and I used to be and i am now not. About about a year ago, I think I just completely was like, no, you're not really. You're not really doing anything film wise that I'm really into, and therefore my interest in you has waned. Yeah, like my peak peak of my. Cumber fandom, was when he played Christopher Tejan's in Parade's End. Um, okay, that was a little while ago, wasn't that it? That was quite, that was yeah. a couple of years ago at least now, so so yeah, it's been a while since I've really cared very much what he was up to. Um, I didn't even go and see The Imitation Game. Ooh, you've oh, yeah, so, dropped off the bandwagon completely. So, so far, so far he has fallen. Well, not yeah. even fallen, I was just disinterested in him, which, as everyone who's ever been a fan of anything knows, is death to your yeah if you if you if you don't even care enough to go and see the film your fandom is dead
2: yeah absolutely i think my very controversial and a lot of people have been like what are you talking about to me when i say this but my controversial opinion is that if you really really like benedict cumberbatch you really just like posh people and wealth (laughs) like (laughs) inherited wealth that's that's what you're into um but you know maybe there's another reason i'm just not getting but I, i he's made some that, that It doesn't altogether surprise me that he said that to his fans outside about not filming him and stuff. Because uh, he's said some things before in the past about his fans that, to me, suggest a, a fairly... You know, I don't want to be too harsh, but they seem a bit snide.
1: Yeah, he's definitely not... Basically, there are celebrities with better attitudes towards their fans. Mm. He's, not unequiv- he's not sort of terrible. Um, You know, he... He has said and done some things that are really nice and positive um but he's not he's not comfortable with it you can just tell and um that comes every so often that kind of bubbles up and i feel like you know the pressure the end of the first his first week playing hamlet it's not going very well initial reviews are not very good and it did to me just seem a bit like he picked something to blame and yeah. he, and so he blamed people apparently photographing him and but again you know not completely the villain here his his statement to people wasn't sort of horrible it was just like I'm really asking you not to do this please spread the word that this is really difficult for me
2: yeah um but even that like I'm not on social media to me it's, yeah. it's a little bit like oh this part I'm not part of this world
1: exactly uh, that really pissed me off actually this he feels like it's something that happens to him it's not something he can participate in yeah which To be fair, a lot of the kind of the way that the Sherlock fandom and his fandom um, has kind of branched off and developed and stuff, it's not to do with him. It's not for him, Um, which is something that was really, really well expressed in um, a piece that our friend Elizabeth Minkle wrote for the New Statesman last year, which was when. Another one of these incidents kind of bubbled up, which was when he was he was interviewed by a magazine in the US and he said some really pejorative things about uh, slash fan fiction, particularly Sherlock fan fiction. But she, she said at the time, celebrities and some journalists for that matter have the platforms, the cultural capital, the power that a fan, even a collective fandom lacks. One side has money and authority while the other side has shared enthusiasm and a lot of beautiful fan art. Fandom as a community, as a deeply supportive space for women and girls, can honestly make a life-changing difference for a person hovering on the margins. Misunderstandings and ignorance, like what I saw this week, threaten an already delicate balance. So I think what we haven't seen from Benedict Cumberbatch is any recognition of that last part. Mm. That actually his statements send ripples through these fandoms in a way that can actually be harmful.
2: I mean, I I find it faintly hilarious that someone's going to criticise fan fiction when one of their main parts of their success is a TV show that's like a a modern day spin off of a canonical piece of literature, i.e. Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, Um, because these things are a creative process. And yeah, sure, you might find some of the stuff in slash fiction distasteful, but it's all part of the same thing, which is like a community of people that really like something, that wanna make it more relevant to everyday life. Mm. And that's exactly what Sherlock as a TV show does. And I think what Elizabeth says about community and the difference it can make to people as something to not be sneered at
1: is really important too. Yeah, and that coming just coming back to the sort of jumping off point for this discussion, which is these I feel like these theatre productions, when the you know, the the great actor, the object of the fandom's interest translates from their tv or film career into doing some stage that's where the the fandom rubs up against another medium and other people and so that's where you get the the sneering and the hurtful comments is what i mean i called it in the article i wrote last year clap shaming that's where you get the um which i was sort of being a bit silly about but i've actually seen people like adopting that as a phrase um (laughs) i like it only being only semi-ironic i think so yeah yeah. I'm, I'm all for that, but yeah, that's where it's when it's when the fandom sort of encounters, comes up against people who are who are not pro that kind of thing, who do not come into these things with a, a sort of base positive attitude. Mm. That's where you get the kind of um, the difficulty, really. where you, where you get this just com- as she says, complete misunderstanding of how how transmissible dislike is and how hurtful it can be.
2: Yeah. And I think it's also to do with that sort of high culture meeting low culture Absolutely. and this idea that theatre is like a sacred space where everything's, just by the very nature of it being at the theatre, is therefore elevated in some way, which I think is bollocks. <laughs> but a lot of people do seem to have that opinion. And it's the idea that Sherlock couldn't be as worthwhile or perhaps a lot better than Benedict Cumberbatch mm. in Hamlet
1: doesn't seem to occur to people. Yeah, I said this in the article I wrote this week that part of the kind of bafflement at these people buying tickets just because Benedict Cumberbatch is in it comes from I think this uh, establishment idea that you can't like Sherlock and Hamlet like Mm -hmm. it's not possible to have that broader taste you're either a young trendy person who's into Sherlock or you're an older serious person who likes Hamlet that it's not possible to like both yeah which is a Faintly absurd, <laughs> and but it's come up before. Same with you know the Hobbit and Richard the Third, or um, uh, Doctor Who, and when David Tennant did Richard II. Yeah. Know, the Second. You know that the fact that you could have a sort of broad enough taste to encompass both of those things is apparently a difficult concept that we haven't quite worked out. But I should also say that I don't place all the blame for this kerfuffle on Benedict Cumberbatch. I do think that theatres have got to get on board with this as well. That they're obviously very happy that their productions sell out as quickly as they do when they've got. Someone like Benedict Cumberbatch, who's got his own fandom, in it. Well, they've got to accommodate them as well. Mm. They've got to make arrangements for him to do signings. They've got to make arrangements for there to be like pre-show talks that he does. You know, they've got this public. They've they're charging them a lot of money. Yeah. They've got to get on board with the format in which they want to appreciate it.
2: Yeah, it's a really basic thing to say, like respect your audience. Yes. Respect your
1: customers. Exactly. our last episode if you remember all the way back to three weeks ago you'll know that i gave anna some issues of the comic the wicked and the divine anna what did you make of them
2: it was a bit confusing i really it's a beautiful beautiful comic so if you're into the visuals of this kind of thing you should definitely have a look through it so i read the first four or five the first volume basically yeah Yeah. i read so yeah i read the first volume that you can like just buy on Amazon etc and each part of it sort of split into individual comics right yeah focuses on a different character and these characters are essentially people who were teenagers normal teenagers and then were imbued with these godlike powers and essentially become a god that can only live for two years and they're basically like celebrities they're like teen pop sensations yeah (laughs) basically but with weird edge because they could also murder anyone at their gigs at any time and it seems to be common knowledge I don't know if there'll be any more like backstory later on in the comic what i managed to piece together is that they were told that they shouldn't tell anybody about it and that they should try and like hide their powers but haven't done that have like become basically celebrities yeah and
1: social media sensations yeah and yeah absolutely and um and they they play massive residencies and they because they can make people feel their powers and sort of make them feel things basically and that's kind of set against this awful truth that once you've once the kind of God has been awakened in you, you've only got two years to live.
2: Yeah, and there's obviously a lot of scepticism from the general public about whether this is like a real thing or not. The The concept is that this only happens every 90 years. Um, so I guess it's never happened before with the kind of exposure that these young people are getting. Yeah. So that's part of it. But it's also a bit like a crime Thing because so basically the main character is called laura she's a fan essentially like a super fan she goes to all their gigs she's seen them all in different parts of london that's like mm. quite a nice list where she's like oh i saw one of them in brixton and i saw one of them in shepherd's bush and she goes to a gig passes out and then wakes up and one of the gods is there yeah and this one's called lucifer or lucy and the crime element sort of comes in when somebody dies seemingly at lucy's hand and the rest of the gods, and particularly Laura, is suspicious as to whether it was actually her. Lucy claims that it wasn't really her, and Laura believes her. And then they attempt to discover which one of the gods among us really
1: yeah. is to blame. And um, so I think they're up to the, the. There's another volume after the one you've read that's been published. But that's you know there's there's still more to come in mm-hmm. the series basically, and the yeah the kind of murder mystery element of it is ongoing like we still don't know what what's happened even though I've read the whole of the second volume as well. On balance, did you enjoy it?
2: I did. I mean, one of the things I liked most about it is is the visuals and that it like lots of places popping up that mm. I know. So like they go to Holloway Prison and. But if it's set in Broccoli, like, she lives in Broccoli, which is really near where I live, and, like, the drawings of the houses around there, they're so beautifully done, and they're weirdly, like, realistic, but more ethereal. I liked the characters of the gods. Uh, I like the way they're drawn and all their, like, weird, like, facial stuff. I found the plot a bit difficult to follow. Mm. I don't know if you did. Maybe you just sailed through it. But I found it, like, the twists and turns had to keep flipping back and stuff.
1: No, I did the same, um... But I, and this is where I confess, I'm not a kind of experienced comics reader, I don't read a lot of comics, so I don't know if that's how you read comics, Mm. or if that's just because I wasn't grasping this one as quickly as maybe I might. But I will say that by the time I got to the end of the, I think it's the 11th comic when they're separate, which is the end of the second volume, I was kind of like, what? There's no more? I Mm. was properly hooked and I really don't want to have to wait month by month now to find out what's happening yeah, um, yeah. so I think the plot did get me in the end even if I didn't I did feel a bit at sea at least to start with
2: yeah and one other thing i really felt about it and I again I think this is something more to do with coming and reading graphic novels is that it was so quick to read but there's so much going on on every page Mm. that you kind of have to make yourself slow down like if you just read the speech bubbles and and the panel quotes and things you're going to be there so you're going to be done so quickly but the joy of it really is like looking at each little scene and seeing how these characters are so nicely drawn and stuff one thing I really liked about it as well is the pop culture references that seep in one of the things that's really funny about it is the epigrams they've got a bit of Faustus where he's talking about um, how he wishes he could live a bit longer and you know uh, not be damned to hell forever and they've also got boom, 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 Venga boys! boom, 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 the party album. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that's very... Um, so the um, the main writer and artist, a British duo called Jamie McKelvey and Kieran Gillen, I follow them both on Twitter, and that's very much their influence, basically, well, is is this kind of combination of high concept with everyday popular culture. And I, I really, really like that. And um, I don't know if it makes it into the bound volumes, but in the back of the monthly comics they write a kind of digest at the end and then there's letters from fans and stuff like that. And I really like that sense of community that it has, that, you know, so they've been going to the various cons and stuff in America and getting, like, selfies with fans and seeing their cosplay and all that kind of stuff. And that's really nice.
2: Yeah, I'll definitely follow them on Twitter because I really liked that, um, that vibe that it had. I think, for me, if I'm being honest, I would... Like it more if it was just about like a girl living in broccoli <laughs> <laughs> It's
1: because it'd be more like a the voice. <laughs> about your life. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. Um, so you know that's obviously just my personal bias, but I, I do, I do think it's really like beautifully done. Mm. I also read Alison, be- is it Bechdel or Bechdel? You know, like the the Bechdel of oh, the Bechdel test. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I read her one of her graphic novels this week that I would really recommend, which. It's called Fun Home, and it's like a memoir about her relationship with her dad. Her dad worked in a funeral home, hence Fun Home as the title. And it's also kind of grimly ironic because you could say, I mean, there's a lot of nice bits about her growing up, but fun is not a word you would use to describe her kind of upbringing. But it's really, it's another thing that makes a lot of references, but these are more like high literary references Mm. so I think the very first bit she's talking about like Icarus and Daedalus and the idea of her dad almost as this kind of god and there's also Joyce references and Henry James there's all kinds of things going on and she'll often sort of describe a bit in her life making comparisons to a bit in a book so you'll have her description of what's happening in that piece of fiction and then panels of her playing with her dad in a completely different situation, but that makes you see the mm. parallels. It was really quite heartbreaking at points because her dad is a complex figure, so I think is a polite way to explain him. But obviously she loves him very much and it's also a lot to do with her coming out, going to university and like discovering like queer theory, essentially. It's really good. Mm. Really recommend it. Have a Have a flick through. And then, next week for you... Uh, we've talked about me recommending this for you for a while, haven't we? But I think finally it is time for you to watch some Broad
1: City. I'm really excited about this. You know, I've got a post-it note stuck on my bedroom wall that just says, Watch Broad City! <laughs> <laughs> okay,
2: well, you can finally do that. So
1: each episode, I think, is about 20 minutes.
2: It's a comedy set in New York about uh, two girls. Uh, I, I always want to call them roommates, but they don't actually live together. They're best friends and they do everything together and they sort of like navigate their lives together giving each other advice but they're also very silly it's it's very much in the vein of like a stoner comedy that that level of silliness and crassness is very much there and it's brilliant and i think you'll really enjoy it
1: yeah well looking
2: forward to that thank you thanks for listening to seriously the pop culture podcast from the new statesman
1: i'm anna and i'm caroline You can find us on iTunes. Our Twitter is at SeriouslyPod. And if you want to send us an email, we're SeriouslyPod, S-R-S-L-Y, pod at gmail.com. Hold
0: up. What was that?